When last you left me, we just closed out chapter one of our look at British folk horror in European cinema. It was an interesting little journey which was still trifling with those ideas of the old world of cinema. The post-hammer horror effect which marred quite a lot of the performances, the actors and adds a level of rich charm for sure. And close on the heels of Cry of the Banshee, the final movie we discussed in chapter one, there would be a movie that would revolutionise the tone, change the pace and up the stakes, defining as a blueprint the idea of British folk horror cinema. A movie which set out to be a follow-up or parody of sorts of Witchfinder General, a movie that was originally thought of as potentially an anthology of devilish tales. Blood on Satan's Claw is the high watermark, the benchmark of British folk horror cinema in the 70s and beyond. Hi, I'm Duncan McLeish and you're listening to Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Ignition, T-10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, liftoff. And welcome back to Season 3 of Chronicle Podcast. This is episode number 4 and we are in Chapter 2 of our look at folk horror cinema from the UK. If you've not checked out Chapter 1 yet, please go back. We have three episodes out there and to be honest, they are a ton of spooky fun. Starting off with the forgotten classic Whistle and I'll Come To You. We then took our journey right through Witchfinder General up to Cry of the Banshee, closing out that chapter on what felt like an older kind of cinema, years before cinema would completely change with the launch of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The movie we're discussing on this episode comes one year before Last House on the Left and the rise of exploitation grindhouse cinema in the USA. The UK is still kind of finding its footing and still trying to be coy and moving away from the template that Hammer Horror Studios had set out. Tried a little something risky, something that felt like a clone of sorts of the Witchfinder General and what ended up being a high benchmark of not only British horror cinema but the template of how you do some creepy folk horror. So we're going to be discussing on this episode Blood on Satan's Claw. 
Before we get to that, thank you very much for checking out this episode and thanks for all the support in our short month's hiatus. We, to be fair, have been busy as always putting out more content on the Teapots Collective page, the page that you're listening to right now on this episode. We are proud to be surrounded by other shows that are my brainchild, whether it's Doing the Nasty, looking at the video nasties, Section 3 movies, 82 movies on a massive journey, an odyssey with my colleague Mark Ball, or if it's Opera Omnia, where we sit and look at a director's full filmography. This season I'm joined by Mr Watson, and we are doing a run of Ben Wheatley. It's been a lot of fun, great conversations about a very talented filmmaker, so you can check that one out. But we've also launched a brand new show, that brand new show is called Where To Begin With. It will run in seasons and will tackle a subject, a subgenre, or maybe even a director or a actor and run the gambit in a selection of movies which are the definitive, as suggested by myself, where to begin with series. Season 1 is going to run the entirety of 2020 and we're looking at Giallo, which is a passion of mine. We've already put out our first episode of what will be 10 planned episodes for the year, one a month. So if you're interested, you've never checked out Giallo before and you want to give it a punt, then go across and check out where to begin with. It's on the same feed as you are listening to this episode right now. Chapter two for our chronicle is going to be a bit more fun. It's going to cover for all intents and purposes, movies that you are fully aware of or should be aware of with a little seesaw at the end of what did I just watch? We are going to be covering, obviously, Blood and Satan's Claw on this episode and then the next episode is looking at the second poster child for British folk horror cinema in The Wicker Man. We're closing out chapter two with a much lesser known and I want to say criminally underrated idea, a movie that is very much ahead of its time in Requiem for a Village. So that will be coming up in two episodes time. It is not the easiest film to track down but I hope you manage to find a copy because it is worth your time. The ideas discussed and put forward there modernise the idea of what folk horror cinema is, takes out a bit of the paganism and without it you could make the case that movies like Eden Lake for example might never have existed. So, yeah, check that one out when it drops in just over a month's time. Right, let's do this. This is a movie, Blood and Satan's Claw, that has been discussed so much by so many learned people. There's very little I can bring to the equation here except applaud the awesomeness on display. And there's a lot to be reverential when watching this movie. You're listening to Chronicle Podcast. Stay with us. I wouldn't lie to your worship. You work these fields each year. Yes, sir, I'd be ploughman to Mistress Banner. Ralph, you disturb me greatly with this tale. I don't mean to, ma'am. If you have unearthed a corpse, man, summon your local justice. It's hardly a case for me. But it weren't human, sir. 
There were fur. Fur? Then it was an animal's remains. You're wasting my time. No, sir, honest. It were more like some fiend. You see, my dear Isabel, the way these old superstitions die hard. Come and look, sir. Then you'll believe me. Pray, dear judge, do ascertain the truth of his story. Uh, merely to set my mind at rest. Very well. We'll investigate your fiend. Come. Blood and Satan's Claw doesn't start out like you think it would. The way most movies are made is a script is designed, is given to a director, he picks his cast, you go out, you shoot the script. What's really interesting about the way Tigan Films approached this particular project was bastardising different ideas different themes and creating what should have been a muddled mess but turned out to be a classic for the ages. A movie that was supposed to be set in Victorian times but changed. A movie that was supposed to be in the vein and containing elements of Witchfinder General but changed. A movie that was supposed to be Three anthological stories themed together around Satan and at the same time about cults, but changed. A movie that was supposed to feature Peter Cushing, but changed. A lot of elements here which should have deemed this movie something entirely different had it come to pass. This particular movie strikes a weird balance in that its anarchy behind the scenes is seamless on the screen. Even the name of this movie wouldn't be settled on until quite late on and would be very different from the proposed beginnings. The Devil's Touch was to be the name of blood on Satan's claw and then Satan's skin. Two specific ideas that would fit very much into the plot of what we see on the screen. However, I would argue there's something mysterious, something kind of creepy, something ultimately cheap about the name blood on Satan's claw. And I think that's why when you sit down and view this movie in all its glory, you start to realise there's real craft behind the scenes. Great cinematography, wonderful score and powerful performances belie a at times cheesy but really well crafted ye old timey script. I see only half my class deigned to come today. Mark Vespers is turned for one. Oh, no, Reverend, sir. He were took sick. Have all the others then succumbed to Mark's distemper? Where's Angel Blake? Angel sends regards, Reverend. Who spoke? 
Says she's awful sorry she could not attend. But she had some fearful important things to do. There is growing amongst you all an insolent ungodliness, which I will not tolerate. It's no common disease which keeps half my class away. And the story itself, whilst definitely being in the vein of a witchfinder general, owes a lot to the turmoil that 1970s society, media, and the consciousness lay. The cultish behaviour here is more indicative and apparently influenced by the Manson family murders. But what's the story actually about? The movie itself is a period piece it's set in the 17th century, out in the sticks of England, a very small village. And there's a man tending a field and an almost blue velvet twist he unearths what he at first thinks is maybe a skull of a man, but under closer inspection still contains an eye and grotesque features. After consulting with a local visiting magistrate, they return to the scene to find that this mysterious skull has vanished. It's almost as if it didn't exist at all, except the mood and the temperament of the village has most certainly changed. People start seeing things that aren't there, hairy hands with claws upon them that try and reach for them. Patches of fur start growing on townsfolk. This is seen as the mark or the touch of the devil that must be cut out and the camera doesn't shy away from some of the more gorier excisions of fur and flesh. And at its core, a new religion rebelling against that of the old. A kind of paganistic devil cult headed up by a 17-year-old femme fatale who bears off the camera and delights in the viciousness of murder and sex. When the magistrate leaves, he's concerned. He's got business to do elsewhere, but vows to return at the point the town needs him most. And shortly after his departure, boy, do the town need him. People start to die, picked off by the cult. Their ceremonies are strange, a mixture of new wave and old paganism mixed with a hearty dose of the land and Satanism. I have not forgotten you. Your village has been much in my thoughts. You would not recognise it, sir. Dreadful things are commonplace and mere children commit the foulest deeds. Children? What deeds? They, they murder one another. We fear that witchcraft has returned. It is more than witchcraft. I am ready to return. But understand, I shall use undreamed of measures. And now we're on a race against the clock to stop the devil and his touch. 
It's assumed that the skull that was unearthed by accident was trapped and very much later used in movies like Rawhead Rex and Evil Has Bethel the Land. On one side, you've got the beautiful and seductive Linda Hayden as Angel Brooke. On the other side, Patrick Wymark, who turns in a truly phenomenal performance as the judge in one of his final roles before he sadly passed away. Piers Haggard directs this movie with an intensity and a softness at times that is truly a wonder to watch balanced on the screen. For all intents and purposes, we've seen before there is a very thin line between what an audience would consider cheesy and what would actually hold up as legitimate or credible. Cry of the Banshee had issues for sure, moments where Price's performance become a bit twee, moments which maybe lessen the impact of the brutality that is happening on the screen. And Blood on Satan's Claw has none of that at all. It's pitched perfect. It's pitched straight. And as a result of that, when the violence does happen, the rape, the torture and the killing, it has serious impact on the audience. And you feel specifically for the characters. And back on episode one, when I stated what I would consider as the tomes or templates, the big tick points that you need to have what is known or what is colloquially known collectively as a group as folk horror cinema. We wanted rural locations and this movie has that. We wanted isolation potentially in groups. This movie has that. The idea that your morals are somehow better or the belief systems of the town is somewhat more backward looking than your beliefs and that's here as well. What you get though as a little bit extra on top of this is the involvement of specifically supernatural elements and the violence that comes along with them. This movie has all those aspects and then more. The idea of some villagers being pious, God-fearing individuals juxtaposed against those who are, well, let's put it this way, children of Satan himself. The idea of a supernatural element, the the confusion of characters here, them not being able to trust their own eyes, chopping off their own limbs in fear that the, the hand grabbing their throat has fur and claws. Or the fact that we have a template violent rape in the middle of this movie, which is still shocking to see even in 2020. This idea of your beliefs being more holy or or better than others as adding to an element of hubris in the character uh, when isolated being turned upon you is certainly here for sure and you have one of the most beautifully isolated rural locations. So yeah, this movie more than ticks the box. I would argue in a lot of circumstances, this movie is setting out the template for what would be closely followed in quick succession by Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man. 
So it's all here. It's all to play for. But let's talk cinematography and score. You need look no further when it comes to a massive back catalogue, a filmography of a cinematographer that should make you quake in your boots than look at the work of the phenomenal Dick Bush. A guy who transcends different genres himself and delivers incredible works of cinema. Blood and Satan's Claw is up there for sure, but in the same year he directs Twins of Evil, a movie which has all the the, the woozy etherealness of, and to be honest, not even etherealness, but a style that has been emulated so many times in other vampire movies. But in the same decade, the man would do Sorcerer, which is an incredible movie as well. He'd work on some of those Pink Panther movies, which are near and dear to my heart, as well as working on the 1966 adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. This man was the real deal and was nominated for many awards. Many great directors working with him, the likes of Ken Russell and Blake Edwards. And it's difficult not to argue that Mark Wilkinson, the man behind the incredible score for Blood and Satan's Claw, may have peaked with this movie. Having worked a lot in theatre, he did have a bit of a run in film. Working on projects which I would say are equally interesting, the likes of the TV productions of Quatermass and the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, he would be originally commissioned, however not able to work on The Wicker Man. We still got a phenomenal folk horror score though from this guy in Blood and Satan's Claw. Sadly for the movie though, as with a lot in the early 70s, the times had moved on. Things were more shocking. The real world was scarier than that portrayed on the screen. And it wouldn't be until the Texas Chainsaw Massacre some three years later hit the big time that people would genuinely find fear in what was played on the big screen. A lot of audiences would overlook Blood and Satan's Claw and as a result was considered a commercial disaster, not making much money at all. We live in the best of times though as the movie was critically well received and with the advent of remasters and changes in the way we consume media, you can now purchase this movie fairly hassle-free and sit down and take in the remaster and all of its beauty and terror. It's a movie now that has a rabid cult following and is widely recognised as one of the three movies that set the tone for folk horror cinema. On top of that, you only have to look at its influence in movies like Midsommar or even The Witch and then look at the back catalogue of Ben Wheatley where we're looking at things like A Field in England or Kill List to understand this movie's prominence and importance in the genre. 
Sometimes it's not how we evaluate a movie when it comes out, but it's enduring legacy on the genre given time that is more important. And for that, Blood and Satan's Claw will always be a rich success. And there you go. That was episode number four of season three. It's the first review of chapter two of Chronicles Look at British Folk Horror Cinema looking at Blood on Satan's Claw. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a pleasure to go back and check out that movie and record this episode for you. The next episode we'll be looking at on this run, in this chapter is the movie that sits side by side, not only in its importance to the subgenre, but its enduring legacy at large. It is, of course, The Wicker Man. And we'll be discussing that in a few weeks' time. Please check out all the shows on the Teapots Collective, whether it's Opera Omnia, Doing the Nasty, or Where to Begin With. These shows are crafted by myself and given to you with love, and this time, specifically, where things are a bit hectic and the world has changed dramatically since the last time we spoke. I hope you are all taking care of yourselves and your loved ones out there. And I hope these episodes are giving you a bit of light relief and entertainment, whilst at the same time giving you a bit of knowledge that you might not have known before. Please remember to come across and join our Facebook group page, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash chronicle podcast. You can start a conversation about folk horror cinema or anything you would like to see us cover in future series of European horror cinema for the show over there. It is a quiet Facebook group page, but it is full of pure cinephiles who are very much in the know when it comes to the subjects. 
So join me in a few weeks' time where we return for episode number five of season three. We're going to be looking at The Wicker Man. Chronicle Podcast was written and recorded by me for you. But before we go, remember, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. This is Duncan McLeish from Chronicle Podcast, an almanac of old world horrors. Until the next time. Ignition. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.